0: Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. We'll be looking, uh, starting in verse 19. And this is our last sermon in this small series called the Preposterous Parables. Uh, Jesus was a very shocking Bible teacher. He challenged conventional wisdom and pushed back against the self-righteous. The assumptions most people had about God, he proved wrong. And in today's passage, he'll do it again. So let's read and then look closely at... What was so preposterous about this unique parable. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, please be our teacher today as we look at what you've got for us. In Jesus' name, amen. And uh, we normally use the NIV here, but uh, this morning I'm using the ESV. Uh, for Really for one reason, and, and it's just for one word, and, and I'll, I'll point that out later. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, full of sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and Lazarus, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things. And now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have moses and the prophets let them hear them and he said no father abraham but if someone goes to them from the dead they will repent he said to them if they do not hear moses and the prophets neither will be they convinced will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead so let's take a closer look at this parable by first looking at the broader context remember this parable is being told by jesus at some kind of a gathering In chapter 15, he's at the home or or with a gathering of very sinful people, prostitutes, tax collectors, traitors to the country, all of that. And some Pharisees show up and chide him for it. They tell him, you you shouldn't be, you're a good rabbi, aren't you? Uh, You shouldn't be consorting with people like this. And the interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't defend them. He doesn't say, oh, come on, they're not so bad. Oh, come on, they're, they're really nice people. No, he actually doesn't defend their actions, their sin, or anything. Instead, he just talks about how much God loves them and wants to save them. And at that gathering, he tells no less than five parables. Uh, I've only preached a couple here in this uh, sermon series, but um, he actually, in this one setting, he tells five parables. The first one is about um, the lost sheep, and there was an, actually a Southern Gospel song uh, about it. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it goes, He left the ninety and Oh no, excuse me. There were ninety and nine, but he left the fold to find one. Little lost lamb, and here I am. I don't know if you ever heard that, but that's the that comes from this parable. So, uh, what what the meaning of that parable is is that the good shepherd he has the ninety nine that are safe, that are righteous, that aren't in danger of judgment, uh, but he leaves them and puts himself in danger out in the wilderness among the the bears and the wolves and the mountain lions and all that. Uh, the thing, the same things that. Threaten the the little sheep, and he goes out and he finds that sheep and brings him home and and when that sheep comes home, that uh, she he has even sort of special affection for that one particular sheep, and so if you are the lost sheep, and we all are, uh, Jesus has left the the fold of heaven to come search for us in the dangerous world, and when he finds us and saves us, he has a special affection for us. Uh, the next one. The next parable is the parable of the lost coin. There was a woman who had some coins and she lost one of them. Uh, and instead of just sort of leaving it lost like we do with the coins in our couch cushions and in between the seats in our cars, uh, she sweeps the whole house. She cleans the whole car out. She does everything she can to find that coin. And, and she celebrates when when she finds it. And the meaning behind that is that You know, there's a lot of coins in the world. There are 7 billion people in the world. And sometimes you may just feel like a number, like a statistic. Um, But God knows you, loves you, values you as an individual. And he will sweep the world clean in order to find you and save you. And he will celebrate when he does find you. And then there's um, the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son, and we looked at that one very closely for a couple of weeks. And uh, in that parable, we see uh, that there are that everybody displeases God, everybody disappoints God, everybody uh, shows their lack of faith in God in some way. Some do it by very public, uh, grotesque sin that is overt; everybody can see it, uh, and, and it's very shameful and disgraceful. But God welcomes you back. But also. God is yearning to welcome back the other kind of sinner, the other kind of son that um, displeases his father by thinking that he's better than the father, thinking he's more righteous than the father, thinking that uh, he, he's, done, he's done so well, but God's hold, held out on him. Either son, God is waiting for the righteous, the, the, the unrighteous and the supposed righteous to come home and restore a relationship with him. Last week we looked at the parable of the shrewd manager, and this is somebody who would connive, no matter what it took to save his soul. He knew his soul was in danger, uh, and he would connive and do whatever he could. And I would, I would, I would implore you to sort of connive and and do everything you got to do to make sure your soul gets saved. Whether whether you have to lay aside your pride, whether you have to sell off all of your hedonism, whether uh, you have to whatever you have to give up, give it up in order to run to Jesus. And then today we're going to be looking at this one that's about justice and ultimate justice and, and the judgment at the end. And we'll see um, what God has to say to us in this parable. So in this parable, there, there's a rich man and a, and a poor man named Lazarus. And this parable is very unique in that um, a character is named. In no other parable is a character named. And, and it's very important that his name is, is Lazarus. Um, what's happened here, the name Lazarus, it's very interesting and it's it's full of irony because it means God is my help. God is my help. But you look at this guy uh, and you look at what his life is like. His life is awful. Has he received any help from God? No. He's a beggar. He's hungry. He's, uh, he's, his clothing is unfit. His, he he's got sores all over himself. He's licked by the dogs. And it, we're not talking about nice dogs. We're not talking about the dog that you got that you let lick all over you. No, we're talking about stray dogs, mangy mutts who are just a step above rats that are wandering the streets and they smell him afar off and come up and lick him thinking that because he, um, he's covered in blood. It's awful. He's living terribly bad, uh, terribly badly. While the rich man, he lives in opulence. He lives in opulence. He wears purple, the very nicest clothes. He eats luxurious meals every day. And it says that Lazarus would like to just eat the crumbs that fall from his table. Uh, two commentaries that I read uh, about this parable point out that in ancient times, people didn't really have silverware, so they ate with their hands. And very wealthy people would use bread, uh, flat bread like that, sort of as a napkin. They just wipe their hands off on the flat bread and then maybe throw it to the dogs. Uh, if we put that in modern day, what that means is Lazarus Lazarus would love to just lick the napkins of this rich man and, and, and just sort of get the morsels, get the flavor, get whatever he could from this man's table scraps, from his napkins even. It's awful. And for the second time uh, in the in these series of parables, we have a person who is jealous of an animal. Uh, the dogs that eat the eat the scraps from this rich man's table, Lazarus would love to have those things. Just like in the parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal son was jealous of all the good things that the pigs had to eat. What it really reminds me of, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember the, 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 the book, A Tale of Two Cities, but at the very beginning of it, uh, it's it's the best of times, it's the worst of times, and in Paris it's the worst of times and and um, there are these guys that are that have a cart full of wine casks, and one of the wine casks fell falls off the wagon while they're trying to unload it, and wine pours everywhere down the street. and all the peasants uh, go out and start licking the wine up off the the road. And it's terribly undignified, but that's how desperate they are for some of the good things in life. That's what Lazarus is like. That's what his life is like. Now this next statement is very telling. It says Lazarus died and the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. Now just remember that for a moment. But then think of this. The rich man died and it says people buried him. It sounds very much like nobody buried Lazarus. It sounds very much like his his body was probably just thrown on the trash heap. That's what happened foreigners and beggars and uh, people that were uh, criminals, people that were not esteemed. The two thieves that were crucified with Christ, that's probably what happened to them. Their bodies were thrown on the trash heap. Gehenna, uh, Jesus called it. And that's what would have happened to Jesus except Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea came and took his body uh, purposefully and gave it the honor of a burial. And Lazarus was taken, or his spirit was taken, to Abraham's bosom. What is that? What is Abraham's bosom? Uh, Abraham's bosom is, uh, you can think of it as heaven, you can think of it as paradise, uh, you can think of it as um, the village of the ancestors that all the, the, the people in the Old Testament longed to go to. Abraham is their father. We, we all long to go to heaven and see Jesus uh, they longed to go to the village of the ancestors and see their, their father, their literal father, their spiritual father, Abraham, and to recline at his side and to, to lay up against him, to more or less sit in his lap. Um, Jesus at the Last Supper, it's, it talks about the Apostle John laying up against Jesus. Now remember, when they eat um, in those days, they don't sit in chairs and sit at a table like us. They They would lay on their left side and use their right hand to eat. And so the Apostle John is laying on his left side up against Jesus and sort of during the, the meal in between bites or sort of after they're finished eating, the Apostle John just sort of leans up against Jesus, lays up against his chest, and Jesus maybe puts his arm around him and says, This is my boy right here. This is, this is the one I've got special affection for. I love this kid. Uh, he's my favorite one of them all. The disciple Jesus loves why what he calls him. And so Lazarus and Abraham here, Lazarus is laying up against Abraham. Uh, and, and this is preposterous. It's preposterous to the Pharisees. It's preposterous to people listening to this because Lazarus, if he's allowed into the village of ancestors at all, he ought to be sitting at the end of the table or in the servants' quarters or, or just outside the gate or in the courtyard or something like that. He shouldn't be up, laying up against sitting in the lap of their great spiritual father. To the Pharisees this is just preposterous. Why? Why is it preposterous? Well, because in the Old Testament in that time and here in the time of Christ it it was taught and it was believed that if somebody was pleasing to God, their life should reflect it. There are places in uh, in Deuteronomy where it sort of uh, supports this idea that if you are obeying God and if God is pleased with you, you shouldn't have any problems in life. Everything should be fine. You should have uh, your home, your land, productive land. You should have plenty to eat, plenty to wear. You should have a large family full of sons, and they're, they're going to take care of you, and you're going to take care of them, and uh, you'll all be in good health and all of that. So if somebody has a problem, if anybody dies young, if anybody has a disease, they obviously are not pleasing God. In in the book of John, there are two or three chapters devoted to the problem of this man born blind. And everybody says, okay, so obviously so there's a sin problem here or else he wouldn't be blind. So did he sin or did his parents sin because uh, he was born blind? So what's going on here? It was a big controversy, and that, that is reflected in this parable here that everybody looked would have looked at Lazarus and said, well, this guy's obviously cursed. He obviously is displeasing God somehow. And in the Old Testament, you have a couple of stories about people who were righteous and suffering anyway. So it, it shouldn't be that it shouldn't be this way. Everybody should understand that there's a, there are exceptions to the rule that even if somebody is suffering, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're displeasing God. Uh, you, you think of Joseph in the Old Testament. He was righteous, he did righteously, he served righteously, and yet he was enslaved at one point and imprisoned at another point. He suffered even in his righteousness. Uh, Even King David spent time wandering in the wilderness, Uh, even when he was God's chosen man. There were times that life wasn't going good for him. And of course, the best example is the book of Job. In the story of Job, Job, um, he's married, and he's got a bunch of kids, and he's very wealthy. And then all of a sudden, calamity strikes, and he loses everything, even his health. And everybody accuses him of being unrighteous, and that's why this has happened to him. But God makes it a point to say, no, he, he is righteous, and, and shame on all of you for assuming that he was unrighteous. But despite all of that, even in uh, Jesus' time, they would have looked at somebody, a beggar like Lazarus, somebody diseased, somebody uh, poor, and say, no, they're obviously not pleasing God. And there were wealthy uh, there were wealthy, evil people in the Old Testament, so they should have known that it's possible to look blessed, but know that you 're not pleasing God. They would have looked at this rich man and said well he 's obviously righteous he uh, 's got all the blessings that god that God gives nice clothes, nice house, eats well. What other evidence do you need so it would be preposterous to them that he could be taken to Hades or hell to begin to begin an eternity of punishment. And why is he being punished? Let's just talk about that for a moment. Is he being punished for being rich? Well, I don't think so. Last week, we talked about how Christians have this sort of love-hate relationship with money. Um, There are Christians who believe, like the Pharisees, that a rich person is a person blessed by God, and the wealth is their evidence. And there are other Christians who believe that all money is evil and must be even renounced and shunned and take a vow of poverty and give all you have to the poor because money is the root of all evil. But both of those interpretations are wrong. Uh, As we talked last week, That it's a misquotation to say that money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. That's what the Bible says. No, the, the real root of all evil is our Uh, Sin and rebelliousness against God, our selfishness, our uh, desire to usurp God even. That's the root of all of the evil in the world. Uh, But money is a bad motivator, and it motivates a lot of people and motivates them wrongly. And just like there are bad rich people in the Old Testament, there's there's bad rich people in the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira were bad rich people. Uh, We see them lying to the Holy Spirit and dropping dead, and it was all because of money. But there were good rich people in the New Testament too. Uh last week we talked about this centurion who blessed the Jewish people, built their synagogue. Uh, they didn't he they couldn't give anything to him. He's the oppressor. He's the one in in, in in power there, but he builds them a synagogue. Uh he's a good rich person. Uh Lydia is this first convert in, in Thyatira. She's a seller of purple cloth. She becomes uh, a very good, rich person who, uh, who uh, sort of advances the kingdom of God in her area. So you can't really say that just because somebody has money, whether they're rich or evil. Uh, the fact is, um, money is inert, and it can be used for good, and it can be used for evil. God judges according to other, uh, other criteria. And so Jesus is pushing back against... The Pharisees' sense of justice when he shows them that the poor man goes to be with Abraham. Now, being poor is no sin, but they would have judged that he's obviously a sinner, no matter if he denies it. And the proof is his wretched life. But Jesus says, no, not so. And Lazarus will receive God's help finally in his death, even if he never got it in life. But the rich man will be judged for his sin of omission. Now, what is that? What is a sin of omission? Well, there, you you can categorize sin different ways, but one way is to say a sin of commission and a sin of omission. So what is a sin of commission? You commit a sin, okay? That is when you actively do something evil, when you uh, actively do something that you ought not to have done. you uh, You blaspheme God, you disrespect God, you hurt yourself, hurt another person. Murder, adultery, using God's name in vain, these are all sins of commission. But there are also sins of omission, and that's when you don't do something that you should have done. Uh, And the best example of that in the Bible probably is the parable of the Good Samaritan, where there was a man who was beaten up and robbed and left to die on the side of the road. Now, the people who beat him up and robbed him, they committed sins of commission. They committed sins. But then there are a couple of people who come by him who omit righteousness from their lives and therefore they they sin. And so in in the parable, you've got the priest and the Levite, clergy and a deacon in a church, something like that. You can think of them that way. And they see this person hurting and they do nothing. They're too busy. They've got other ministry to do. They don't want to dirty their hands with his blood. And so they omit righteousness by not caring for this person. And then the Samaritan comes along and does something about it and he commits an act of righteousness instead of omitting uh, an act of righteousness and therefore sinning. When we don't do what we ought to have done, we'll be held accountable for it. And the only message that I think we should take away from here about eternity is that God's, mes- uh, God's judgment is final. There's no getting out of hell. It's real. It's awful it's final. The separation is made. The rich man pleads for help, and I think it's funny that in hell he asks for Lazarus to come help him. Why would Lazarus come help him? You never helped Lazarus. And some would point to this and say that the rich man obviously still hasn't learned anything. But then his thoughts rightfully turn to his brothers, and he desires their salvation. And he asks Abraham, not God, he asks Abraham, Father Abraham, Send Lazarus to my brothers to warn them. And Abraham says, no. It's kind of cold. Abraham's kind of cold here. He says, no. Scripture can be their guide. They can pay attention to Moses. They can pay attention to the promise. The scriptures tell them everything that they need to know. And the rich man had that too, but it obviously wasn't good enough to convince him. And so he says, no, no, no. It wasn't good enough for me. It won't be good enough for my brothers, please. If somebody comes back from the dead, they'll believe him. And Abraham says, No, they won't. And to me, that's one of the most preposterous things about this parable. How much does it take to convince people that Jesus is the way? I've talked about the movie Contact. There's a movie, it's a really good movie, it's called Contact. And it was based on a book by an atheist. And in it, this secular atheist astronomer is talking to a member of the clergy, and she says, I just can't believe that some almighty powerful being created all this and then gave us no proof of his existence. And since it was written by an atheist, the clergy's response was very bad, I thought. What he should have said, the proper response, is to say, what if the creation itself is the proof? We often point to creation itself as a proof that God exists and that he has a plan and that he has things structured and he has reached out to us. But beyond that, we have scripture and the Bible is the most copied, translated, widely read book in the world, and yet many people still pay it no mind. If you won't look at creation, if you, won't look at, uh, if you won't believe the Scriptures, if you won't believe my testimony, then what proof can I give you? This rich man thinks that a magic trick of bringing somebody back from the dead would do it. If, if somebody from your past, your grandparent, your great-grandparent, came back from the dead and gave you a message, would it convince you? I don't know. I would I would want to think so. But in this parable Jesus is saying no, somebody coming back from the dead won't convince most people, and he, and I think he's basically saying, Let me prove it to you. Because not long after this parable Jesus is going to live it out. He's not a poor man, but he's certainly not rich. He's not afflicted with sores, but at his crucifixion the soldiers will certainly open the skin on his back with a whip, and he will be treated as though he is cursed, and he'll die on a tree, which isn't a curse in the old testament. He's not going to be thrown in the ditch after he dies, but he'll be buried haphazardly in haste. And he'll even go to Abraham's bosom and snatch the keys to death and Hades from the enemy. And when the testimony is given that he has come back to life from the dead, back from the dead, to show us the way to eternal life, guess what? Still many won't believe. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe the testimony of Scripture that Jesus is alive and eternal life can be guaranteed. So what's the takeaway for you and me? First of all, believe in the Lord Jesus, the man who died and was raised again. His death was meaningful and purchased your salvation. Trust in his death. Declare belief in him as the Son of God, that he is alive and you shall be saved. Secondly, when you look at your life and the lives of the people around you, wondering whether or not you're blessed or cursed, let me tell you something. The only curse you need to worry about is the curse of sin and death. Jesus has abolished that curse on the cross. Now, if you believe in him, you are blessed. The curse of sin and death has no hold on your life and no problem in your life. And I know you've got problems in your life, but no problem in your life is a punishment from God. You may have to live with the natural consequences of your choices, but they are not punishment from God. If God is punishing us, then why did Jesus die? No problems come and go. And they're used to refine us and mature us and make us better. But they're not a punishment from God. So if things aren't perfect in your life, and I know they are, not don't think of them as punishment. Think of them as God making you more mature. And whatever problem you have that pushes you to God in prayer is actually the best thing you've got going for you. And if things are going good in your life, that's good. I'm glad. If you're wealthy, that's great. It doesn't mean you have arrived, spiritually speaking, Remember, for all of us, we are blessed, blessed to be a blessing, blessed in different measure, some blessed with this much, some blessed with much more. But whatever you have, whatever tangibles you have in life, make sure that you are giving to the poor and needy. And I actually don't know a rich person who doesn't, by the way. I've actually known a lot of rich people in my life, and many of them are Christians, and many of them I judge to be quite generous. They've even been generous to me. I think parables like this are part of that reason. Our culture is still affected by Judeo-Christian values, and even non-believing wealthy people know that they ought to give out of their abundance. But if you have an abundance of anything besides money, make sure you are sharing that too. Whatever God has blessed you with, remember, you are blessed to be a blessing. Don't hold out on us. We need you. And it'll come back to you to bless you as well. Remember, it's more blessed to give than to receive, right? Don't you believe that? Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this day. We thank you for all the tangibles that you've given to us in our life. We we thank you for the intangibles that are just as much a blessing to us. Lord, turn us into a generous people. Turn us into a people who are confident that we are not cursed, but that we are blessed that we are blessed in you and that the things that are difficult in our life are not a punishment from you. Help us to live in the blessing of knowing you, being filled with your spirit, being gifted by you, and help us to be generous to the people around us. Help us to not judge our level of blessedness or anybody else's level of blessedness, but rest in the fact that in eternity, all who believe in you, Lord, will be ultimately blessed. It's wonderful to be your child, Lord. We thank you for that that privilege. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now let me say a word of blessing over you. May God our Father bless you in every way to become as Christ, a, a conduit of blessing in the world. And by the abundance of the Holy Spirit, may you enjoy God's presence in your life And may you offer that blessing to others as well. Amen.